Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, David, for reading earlier. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. You might notice the sign up, or you might uh, be uh, aware that it was Ash Wednesday last Wednesday, and as we move into the season of Lent, it's often a time when we talk about giving up, right? Sometimes people give up things for Lent. Sometimes uh, it's just more about having a posture of preparing for Easter. And I think that's really what our purpose here is, is that we're preparing ourselves for Easter. Easter is about six weeks away, and we are preparing for that. Now, this year, during the season of Lent, we're going to be in Mark. And we're looking at miracles in Mark. You might remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote the beginning of the good news, the gospel, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we get ready for Easter and we, we prepare for all that will happen during Holy Week where Jesus is crucified, he dies, and then is raised to life again, we understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And Mark uses these miracles to teach us about Jesus. So as we walk through the story, we understand that when Jesus comes to the cross, he's not just a man willingly laying his life down for his friends. He is God himself come. He's the Messiah. And that's what Mark is telling us about. And so Mark uses these miracles to help us understand who Jesus is, to understand Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, if you will. And there are ten key miracles in Mark. We won't have time for every one of them. We've already covered two of them, in fact, already this year. But we're going to be looking at six more miracles. So every week, we're going to look at a miracle that helps us understand Jesus' authority over some particular aspect of the world. We're going to see Jesus' authority over disease, over the forces of evil, and in some cases, over nature itself. You know, many people flock to Jesus to be healed. They came, and as we talked about with the children, as you'll see in this story this morning, the people come to Jesus because they have a physical need, but Jesus has come to do more than that, and the story today reveals really Jesus' power, not over just the physical world, but also over sins uh, themselves. So, we are in Mark chapter 2. Let me invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, and as, as we often do, let me encourage you to leave your Bibles open as we walk through this passage together this morning. Going back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, it's a miracle again that demonstrates Jesus' power over sin. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, you might notice it says home. So home base is Capernaum. Jesus is from Nazareth, this smaller town, but he had relocated to Capernaum. Most scholars believe that he's probably living with Peter in Peter's house when he's in town, and he's come home. Now, what do you do when you come home? You want to take your shoes off, right? Put your comfortable clothes on, maybe sit in a recliner, relax. But Jesus doesn't get to relax because people have heard who he is. And he told them on a number of occasions, don't tell anybody, because he, again, is, 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 has a purpose. And again, as uh, I was talking with somebody about this whole dynamic this morning, um, Jesus is kind of controlling the narrative, if you will, because people will often misunderstand him. People call, come to be healed, and they think of him as a 
as a healer, as a miracle worker, but Jesus has come to do more than that. He doesn't want things to get out of hand. But when people are healed, they tell people anyways. And so Jesus has come home, but when he comes home, there's lots of people who are there ready to hear him, ready to have him heal. Look at verse 2. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. You might imagine the scene. Lots of people gathered. Jesus understands why they're there. So he begins to preach, to preach the word to them. Now, we don't have the words that Jesus preached in front of us here. Mark doesn't record those words. In fact, Mark doesn't record a lot of Jesus' teaching. We have to go to Matthew and other Gospels to actually read the words of Jesus. But Mark here is telling us what is happening, and he's describing these scenes. Look at verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you've got a mat or a bed that the guy is lying on, you usually have four corners. And so you could imagine a person on each corner bringing their friend to Jesus. Why are they bringing their friend to Jesus? Because he can't walk. And they've heard that Jesus can heal. And so they have confidence that Jesus can solve the problem. And they get there. And again, picture Jesus in a house, not a very large building, and he's preaching, and people are gathered. Maybe people are standing outside the house. Maybe people are looking into the windows. Either way, when they arrive onto the scene, they can't get through the crowd to Jesus. Verse 4 tells us what happens next. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on on. Now, we have to understand roofs in the first century if we're going to understand what's going on here. Roofs were not like they are today. And today we picture a roof, we think you got to go get a ladder, right? you got to climb up there. And if you're going to break through it, it's going to take more than just digging, right? Probably have to have some power tools to get through a roof today. But it wasn't like that in the first century. In the first century, uh, roofs were a part of almost every home. And it was kind of an upper level deck, if you will, often made of thatch or mud. And that might you might help us understand how they could dig through a roof. And a roof in that day and time was kind of a part of the home. Usually had a staircase that made its way up to the roof. That would make sense then. They don't have to go get a ladder. They can just climb up the stairs to get into the roof. And they can break through the roof by again opening a hole. So that's what they do. So Jesus is on the lower level. He's teaching People are crowded around to hear them. They can't get in, so they make their way up the staircase and begin to form an opening in the roof, and they lower their man or their friend down. I imagine Jesus preaching, and all of a sudden, mud is falling down, right? Or clobs of dirt are falling. Maybe one hits him on the head. I don't know. But everybody's watching this, and again, if I'm sitting in this room and I'm preaching to you, and somebody walks in the door, guess what all of your eyes do? You go that way, right? And all of a sudden, I know somebody else is in the room. But you can imagine Jesus preaching a sermon, and all of a sudden, somebody's coming down. The sermon's over, right? Whatever Jesus is saying, nobody's paying attention to him anymore. They're looking at the man coming down through the roof. And when Jesus stops the sermon, he is not irritated because his sermon is interrupted. Instead, he's impressed by the people. And so all the attention turns to this man being lowered down through the roof. It says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now Mark tells us that Jesus sees their faith. Now, do you think that they understood Jesus' full identity? Do you think they understood exactly who Jesus was, what he had come to do? I doubt it, right? What are they doing? They're simply bringing their friend to be healed. Jesus is a healer. They've heard that he can heal. Their friend needs healing, so they simply bring their friend. And Jesus is impressed by their faith. You know, faith is not always about what we believe. Faith is sometimes what we do, right? And here, faith is put into action as these men bring their friend to Jesus. They don't have to understand everything about Jesus. They probably don't. But they have faith to bring their friend. And Jesus is impressed with their faith. Now, let's focus on these five words that Jesus speaks here. I think this is interesting because it, it might catch us off guard. I think it probably caught the people in the house that day off guard. Look at what Jesus said to the man. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, do you think the man was coming seeking forgiveness of sins? Probably not. He was coming to be healed, right? And, and when Jesus speaks these words, I imagine everybody going, what? I, I thought he would heal the man, right? The man obviously has a problem. He can't walk. I thought he would bring healing. And Jesus is talking about sins? Now, first of all, how does Jesus address him? Jesus calls him what? This. i got to make sure you're paying attention this morning. Son. son, good. He calls him son. Now, that might seem a little strange, but son, Jesus is like the father, right? He's in authority. He's saying that he's in charge, but it's also a term of endearment that says that this man is very valuable, doesn't it? Son, he says. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus say this? It's a great question, isn't it? You know, there are connections in Jewish thought and Jewish theology between sin or an ailment and sin, right? Do you remember when Jesus and his disciples find the man who was born blind? What did the disciples ask him? Who sinned, right? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And so th there's a connection there. Now, Jesus corrects this notion. It's, it's not a correct notion. It's not how God operates. But again, that's maybe in their thoughts. And again, I don't think that Jesus is necessarily connecting this man's ailment with sin as much as Jesus is taking care of what needs to be taken care of first and then healing the man. The man needed spiritual healing. Maybe he didn't know it. Maybe, not, maybe that's not the reason that he came. But the man's sins needed to be forgiven, and that's what Jesus does first. Now, look at what happens next, verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, if we've been reading the story, we're going, uh-oh, right? <laughs> this is trouble. They were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, our attention shifts from the paralytic man to the religious leaders. They are dumbfounded by Jesus' words. And what do they ask? Who can forgive sins but God alone. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Only God can forgive sins. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying that your sins are forgiven. You see, they could not understand this. And Jesus' proclamation here is more than just a caring for this man. Jesus is in essence saying, I have the power to forgive sins. 
How could Jesus do this? How could he say this? It's one thing to speak these words, isn't it? But Jesus has a plan. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? I think that's fascinating, isn't it? They're not even speaking. And Jesus, Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. I think Jesus knows them well. He knows that what he says is out of bounds, right, theologically, that a person cannot forgive sins. He knows that his claiming to be God in their midst is going to disrupt them, right? And so Jesus says to them, I know what you're thinking in your heart. Why are you thinking it? That must have caught them off guard. And then we don't have a response from the religious leaders here, but we hear Jesus say this, which is easier, verse 9, which is easier, say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up, take your mat, and walk? That's a good question, isn't it? Now, if I said to you, your sins are forgiven, you, you might think, okay, right? How do I know that that's the case? Is there proof there? You really can't uh, say anything back to denounce that. But if I say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, you can't bluff, can you? <laughs> you, either, you either have the power to do that or you don't have the power to do that. And it's going to be really apparent in just a few minutes whether or not you have the power to do that. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is demonstrating his authority not only over the man's ailment, but over his spiritual condition. Now, I bet you could hear a pin drop in the room at this moment. All eyes are fixed on Jesus. I bet that Jesus was interesting in his sermon, right? Not that he would have been boring, but now everyone is on the edge of their seats. What is going to happen now? Now again, back up with me a minute. They came to hear Jesus. Jesus is preaching to them. And right in the middle of the sermon, the roof opens up. A man is lowered down on a mat. And Jesus says to him that his sins are forgiven. And now Jesus says he's going to prove it. Look at verse 10. So he said to the man, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now what's going to happen, right? Jesus is making bold claims. He said that he could forgive sin, something only God can do. He's claiming to be God. And now he says to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. Verse 12, he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. What a story, right? So what's it all about? Why is Mark putting this in his gospel? Why does he see it as essential to our understanding Jesus as Son of God, as the Messiah? Let's focus on a couple of words that I think are crucial to the story. Look back at verse 7 with me. Look at what the religious leaders ask in verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That, that's a key part of the text. And the word for can there is the Greek word dynatai, which means to have the power to do something. Dynamite, right? Power. So who has the power 
to forgive sins, the ability to forgive sins. Only God does. And then look at verse 10. These these are Jesus' words. Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, he doesn't use the same Greek word. He doesn't say, I have the power to do it. They say, who has the power to do it? He doesn't say, I have the power to do it. He uses a different word. He says, I have the authority to do it. Now, the word for authority is exousia, which is the word where we derive exorcism. It means to have the power, the authority to do something. Jesus says, it's not that I can do it or have the power to do it. I've been given the authority to do it. Who, who gives? Someone has to give you authority, right? Authority is something that is granted by someone. And so we see the Father giving the Son authority. This is from the Father. I, it's not that I can do it. I have the authority to do it, Jesus says. And we know and understand Jesus is God himself in the flesh. It's truly an astounding claim. And the result of this encounter leaves everyone in awe. Again, you can't really verify that the man's sins are forgiven, but no one can deny that the man who was once paralyzed is now walking. So people connect the two, don't they? Well, if he can do that, he must be telling the truth about his authority to forgive sins. He proved it. He proved it by telling the man to pick up his mat and walk. In verse 12, everybody says we've never seen anything like this. No doubt, right? So here we are on this first Sunday in the season of Lent. We're reading about Jesus. We're reading about this good news, this gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. You might say, is he? Really? Well, that's what he did. He must be. Over the next six weeks, we are preparing for Easter. We're going to gather in this room on March the 31st, and we will proclaim together that he is risen. But as we make our way toward Easter, let's consider these stories, these claims that Jesus is making. He said he could forgive sins, and he proved it by restoring a paralytic's ability to walk. I imagine Mark sitting with Peter as he's preparing to write this gospel. I imagine Peter telling Mark the story. No one had ever seen anything like this, Peter says. I'd never seen anything like this. Jesus was in our midst. God was in our midst. He was saying that he could forgive sins. And then he made the man walk. Who is Jesus? He's God. With the authority to bring spiritual healing. Forgiving sins. And in turn, he gives physical healing to this man. You know, Jesus is still doing this today. He's still forgiving sins. He's still meeting us in places. We might think we have a physical need, and we come to God, and we say, we we need this to be healed, God. We need you to do whatever that might be. But Jesus says to us, I want to handle the spiritual part first. Your sins are forgiven. And then he takes care of us in a physical sort of way. Your sins are forgiven. It's an astounding claim. How might we respond to God's word today? How might we understand who Jesus is as we make our way toward the cross during this season? Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful this morning to be able to open your word together to study the story. 
God, may the story get inside of us. There's no doubt that if we were in the house that day, our jaws would be dropped. And as we read these words, we have an opportunity to hear the story, to encounter you. God, may we understand who you told us that you were. Help us to put our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.